One of the real downsides of social media is that people can share anything they want. Now that's also one of the positive sides. It means you can share things which are good and beneficial to people. But I remember there was a time back on Facebook where, where you put in your status update, it said, what's on your mind? And the problem was, people told you what was on their mind, whether you wanted to hear it or not. Now, some of you might've had a good laugh because someone shared what was on their mind, might've been encouraged by it. Others might've thought, give me Mark Zuckerberg's direct number. I wanna tell him what I have just had to endure. But there's one thing you can guarantee when it comes to social media. When people have got a complaint about something, they will let you know. And every single year at Christmas, there's one complaint I guarantee will come up on my newsfeed every single year. They've taken Christ out of Christmas. We need to bring Christ back into Christmas. Now, at a surface level, I totally agree. Jesus coming into our world is the most important thing that we are to remember and celebrate at Christmas. But what I wonder is when someone says they've taken Christ out of Christmas or we need to put Christ into Christmas, I wonder what exactly do they mean? Because often it's a reference to the fact that their local shopping center no longer has a nativity scene or they're frustrated because there's a sign that says Merry Xmas. It hasn't got Christ, it's got Xmas which incidentally, in its original form, was not designed to take Jesus out of the name. In fact, the word Christ begins with the Greek letter key, which looks like A-L-X. So they were originally they were just using it as an abbreviation rather than leaving Christ out of Christmas. So sorry if that spoils one of your favorite little rants. But when people say they've left Christ out of Christmas, I'm wondering if in the back of their mind, what would it mean to put Christ into Christmas if it just means putting out nativity scenes, making sure it says Christmas, not just Xmas? But is that really putting Christ back into Christmas? I mean, Christ isn't just a name. It's not Jesus' last name. He wasn't born to Mary and Joseph Christ. It's actually a description or a title, which means anointed one or anointed king. So to satisfactorily put Christ back into Christmas, if that's what people want, what we ultimately desire is that Christ as the almighty anointed king, that he be proclaimed, that that be brought back into Christmas. In fact, when the Bible speaks about Jesus as a king, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, it describes him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So you could imagine any possible king, great leader or ruler that's ever been, and Christ is the king of even that king. But sometimes it's hard to reconcile. Here is the one who's called the king of kings, the lord of lords, the greatest king that's ever been. But when we look at his birth, his life, and his death on a Roman crucifix, we think, how does that go together. How can this child born in a place designated for animals, laid in a food trough, how can this be the king of kings and how is this good news? Now the first thing we're going to look at is the king who was promised. In the previous week we went right back to the beginning of the Bible to establish that God is the rightful ruler or king of everything because he created all things 
therefore is the owner and ruler of all things. But even though the first human beings, they had it living a dream. They had perfection. They had perfect relationships with one another, perfect relationships with the world in which they live, and perfect relationships with the perfect and loving God who created them and provided everything for their enjoyment. All of that only went downhill when they turned their back, when they decided that living under his rule wasn't best. They decided for themselves, we can rule our lives better. And from there, the mess has entered into our world. But we saw that right back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God promised that he would raise up one, one who would be descended from that woman, who would crush, who would reverse, who would rescue the effects of that initial rejection of God as our ruler. But that's not the only figure that is anticipated in the first book of the Bible in Genesis. If you turn with me in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we read these verses. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So speaking about the time when Israel would have kings, it says that kingdom line will be through the line of Judah and kings will come. There'll be king after king. One will die. They'll be replaced by another king until the king to whom it belongs comes. So there's king after king after king. Then there's a final king. No other king after him. A king who would reign forever. Did you know that even in the first book of the Bible, spoke of a coming king who would reign forever. And you notice in the words here, it says, and the obedience of all nations. In other words, all people. He is the eternal, everlasting king for all people. As the Israelites' kings came, their anticipation arose. People think, is this king going to be the one? Is this going to be the one? Now, King David looked great. It looked like he could be the one. But he wasn't the one who was good to be the fulfillment of that. In fact, he was the one who was to hear about the fulfillment of that. He is told by this in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days, that's David's days, are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up from your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So in a line of succession of kings, king after king, here it's speaking about one who will descend from David, whose kingdom will be forever. And that's hard to take hold of. Forever. Every king we've ever known in this world has had a kingdom for a short or a long period of time, but it has come to an end. But who is this king that's promised who would reign forever? Well, even before Jesus was born, it was spoken of him by the angels. If you read with me from Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Speaking of this child who be born, Jesus Christ, he will be great and he will be called son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here it comes, the announcement. This is this king, the one who will reign forever, the one who will be the eternal king for whom is due the obedience of all people. 
You expect huge fanfare. This is what everyone's waiting for. But in the arrival of this king, we see Mary and Joseph, not of particular great status, not highly recognized in society, quite poor, humble people. Yet God had chosen to place in Mary's womb this child, Jesus Christ, to come into the world. And just while they're traveling and they enter into Bethlehem because there was a census that was called. And there she comes and she needs to give birth for the king of kings, the eternal king, the one who was promised and anticipated. And there's nowhere for this child to be born. And this child ends up being born in a place designated for animals and laid in a bed, which was actually a food trough. Now, I want you to picture this for a moment. Imagine Donald Trump had kids. I know you don't like the thought, but just humor the idea for a moment. Imagine he was traveling on holidays. His wife comes to give birth to a child. They're told, sorry, there's no room for you anywhere. You're going to have to use this dirty old barn on the farm. Can you imagine Donald Trump's Twitter account and the outrage that would pour out? Don't you know who I am when you say I've got no room for you? Yet here is the king of kings. No grand fanfare. A humble Moses, sorry, Mary and Joseph. Born in a stable. Laid in a food trough. And get this. Neither Mary nor Joseph or even Jesus when he grew up said, I deserve better than this. Don't you know who this is? And there's something here that needs to be told. It seems very clear that what's far more important is that, that this child has come. Not necessarily the reception or the fanfare that surrounds his arrival. Even as an adult, Jesus hasn't got a massive amount of property and belongings and grandeur. He says the Son of Man hasn't got a place to lay his head. He doesn't have his own lodging. He doesn't have his own home. And you think, that's not the way I imagine kings. That's not what I picture when I picture great rulers. They tend to have all sorts of grandeur around them, all sorts of wealth and material and belongings. Why not the best for the best? If this is the king of kings, why isn't he given so much more? Which is now we're going to turn at the king and the coming of his kingdom. Now in our message last week, we looked at the fact that Jesus was foretold more than hundreds of years before he was born. And the fact that predictions were made about him hundreds of years in advance told us that his arrival wasn't just something exciting. It was something that was part of a bigger plan and a purpose. Now, Jesus spoke of his own purpose for coming into this world. We read this from Mark chapter 10, verses 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See what Jesus says about the reason for his coming into this world? He didn't come to be served. He didn't come to receive what he was worth, what he was due to ask people to um, give him some grand rich performance. But he came to serve and to serve the very people who had turned their back and said, I don't need you as my ruler. And not only has he come to serve them, he came to serve them in the ultimate way by laying down his own life for them. 
He says, as a ransom for many. Remember back to the Garden of Eden? What was the consequences of rebelling against our rightful ruler, God who created us and gave us everything to enjoy? It was death. And Jesus says, his purpose in coming to an unworthy people wasn't to be served, but to serve and to lay down his life to pay that penalty of death on behalf of an undeserving people who had turned their backs upon him. The greatest king of kings didn't come to establish a lavish kingdom. The greatest king of kings humbled himself, entered into our broken world, came to everyday broken people who had rejected him and rebelled against him, and invited them into his glorious kingdom. Remember with John the Baptist and Jesus, they both had similar statements announcing the arrival of Jesus. Their words were this, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. In the coming of Jesus as that king, the kingdom had arrived. When the Pharisees asked Jesus, when would this kingdom come? This is the response that he gave. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will I say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In the coming of the King Jesus, the kingdom was at hand. It was in their very midst. But it was something very different than they expected. It wasn't a kingdom on earth. It wasn't a kingdom of political rule on this, on this earth. But you could be tempted to ask, this is the one who's supposed to fulfill this promise, whose kingdom would have no end. This, this Jesus Christ who was crucified at age 33, hasn't that brought an, a, an abrupt end to this idea of an everlasting or an eternal kingdom? Well, far from it. Death was actually the door by which he entered into his kingdom. In Peter's famous sermon in Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see Peter make the connection between the promise of a king who would reign on David's throne forever and Jesus' death and resurrection. Let's read from Acts chapter 2. Brothers, I may say with you with confidence about the tomb of our patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. How did Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, see this one who would be sit on David's throne forever? He says, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. As Jesus was crucified, raised on the third day, exalted to the right hand of God, he is reigning and that kingdom has begun. But like any good infomercial, but wait, there's more. Because if this was all it was, we'd look around the world in which we live in and think, man, it's still a mess. But this is only just the beginning. Remember, by nature, we were slaves to sin. We couldn't help ourselves but to rebel and do our own thing, to reject God's claim to be our rightful ruler. We were under the sentence of death. Yet Jesus came into our world. He died a death on our behalf. He bore our punishment. And he showed that he had power over sin and death and Satan as he was raised on the third day. And now he has ascended to the right hand of the Father and reigning. 
But as I said, this is not the end. This is just the beginning. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he must reign until all of his enemies are a footstool under his feet. If we continue back to what Paul said at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see he brings that back into light saying, For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, so this is David speaking about his Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David speaking of Jesus says, He is his Lord, the one whom God has said, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies your footstool. And let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Now this is necessary. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and he reigns until all of his enemies are his footstool. And it says, and God appointed him both Lord, which means master or ruler and Christ the anointed king this is who God has appointed and this who Jesus is so what you ask Jesus died he raised again he's reigning from heaven so what he's waiting there till all of his enemies are his footstool the problem is you and I are his enemies if by nature we have rejected his right to rule over our life, to be in relationship with him, we are hostile towards him. We are his enemies. And this king is returning and all of us will have to give an account before him and will either stand before him as ones who have been justified, that is declared right in his sight, not because we're good enough, but because Jesus has taken our punishment on our behalf and we have trusted in him. Or we will stand there as his enemies and be treated there as his enemies. What did Jesus and John the Baptist say in the announcement of the coming of this kingdom? They say, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That is the right way to prepare yourself for this kingdom, to repent. Now, that word repent, it sounds a little bit foreign at times. It's what you imagine some you know, doom and gloom guy standing with a sandwich board. The end of the world is coming. He's got on his, on his sandwich board sign. But it simply means to, to turn around, to change your mind, to chuck a yui to use Australian terminology. It means to turn from living one way, which is in rejection of God's rule, to turning and living and enjoying his rule. So what are we speaking of in preparation for this kingdom? Not only do we trust that Jesus' death was satisfactory as a substitute for my punishment, for my sin. But because we are repenting of our sin, we're sorry that we've rejected him as our king. And now we turn to live and say, you are my king. You are my ruler to whom I belong, to whom I will live for. And that's exactly what Peter's hearers think. When they hear this message preached at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, it says here in the following verses, verses 37 to 39. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So they've heard this message. 
They realize that Jesus has been appointed as Lord and Christ. He is the anointed eternal king. They understand, I need to do something. What do I do in response? And Peter says, repent. Be sorry that you haven't given him the honor and respect to his due. Trust in Jesus Christ that his death was satisfactory as a substitute for your punishment on your behalf and turn to live for him. And then the outward sign of that, it says, and be baptized. In baptism, there is that symbolism of a going down, being buried as you go under the waters and being raised to newness of life and that the old life is gone and in trusting in Christ, a new life is given. But again, that's not all of it. It says, and you will have forgiveness of sins, past, present, future, the one who will be your judge has declared you innocent. Not only that, it says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That the very Spirit of God will come and live within you. The Bible speaks of this Holy Spirit as a guarantee and a seal of our inheritance, meaning that it's God's mark on us, that we belong to His, that when His perfected kingdom comes, that we are marked as His, we will enter into that kingdom. And also, um, this um, Holy Spirit, as Jesus is speaking about his promised Holy Spirit, it's when the disciples are saying, Jesus, you're about to leave us. How are we going to cope? And he speaks about another counselor he's going to send. And this Greek word he's used for another means another of exactly the same kind. He's comforting them, saying, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit, which is the same as having me with you. And when we come to trust in Christ, Christ lives in us by his very Holy Spirit in every single one who is us, who marks us as his own to enter into his kingdom. And who is this for? Well, the passage says it's for all of us who are far off. And who were far off? Well, ever since Adam, every single one of us has rejected God's claim to be our ruler. We've said we want to live our own way. This promise is for every single one of us. This is our king. He came not to demand that we would give him what he's worth. This kingdom, this king entered into our world to offer us what we don't deserve and invited us into his glorious kingdom. Jesus entered that kingdom by way of his death and resurrection. And we enter that kingdom the exact way by trusting in his death. His death that was as a substitute for us who had rebelled and rejected God. And by the same means, by trusting in his death, that we enter into his eternal kingdom, which begins in us today. Now, when you hear the words king or ruler, love's not a concept we usually associate. We usually think about someone who's a dictator, someone who's oppressive, someone who's self-serving or abuses the people. But in the coming of Christ, we don't just have a king who is eternal. We have the king of kings, the one who is above all kings, the one who is the, the perfect king, whose kingdom and everything about his rule is perfect and is for the benefit and the good of those who are in his kingdom who loves and respects and gives blessing to those who are in his kingdom. Let me read with you from Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 10. So we see something of the love and the nature of this king who has come to us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, 
not when we got good enough for God, while we were still living as enemies of his, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now have been justified, that is declared right, by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were sinners we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Jesus is the King of kings who has come to us. But he also promised that he would be return his coming to us again. When Jesus speaks about this second coming in Matthew chapter 25, he says there will be an eternal divide into two groups of people. He said they'll either go into eternal punishment or into eternal life. And what made the division between those two groups of people wasn't who lived a better life or who did certain things. What made the division between those two people was who had accepted the invitation of Jesus Christ into his glorious kingdom by trusting that his death was satisfactory as a substitute for our rebellion against God and we turn back to him as our rightful ruler and king. That's what makes us and brings us into that eternal life, that eternal kingdom that we have got that down payment by his spirit where marked as his, we will enter into his eternal kingdom. This is the king of kings. This is the one who has humbled himself, who's come down into our world. This is the king of Christmas. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have son sent this most beautiful and wonderful king of kings not just to give us what we deserve but in fact to offer us what we don't deserve and to invite us into your glorious kingdom a place where your rule is full of your your blessings and your good lord we thank you for the wonderful promises that we're told in the last book of the bible that, that this kingdom when it comes in it's all of its fullness everything we don't like about this world all of the pain suffering death hostility will all be gone there will be perfect peace with one another, perfect peace with you, and we will enjoy your blessing and your goodness forever. Lord, I pray if there are people who hear this message who do not know the King, that they might see the wonderful love of your King, of Jesus who's come down into the brokenness of our world, not to condemn it, but to invite us into your glorious kingdom, as he came not to be served, not to get what he des deserved or was worthy of, but to lay down his life for us who were not worthy, to die our death in our place so that we could know you. We pray this in the almighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.